You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week we caught up with Erwan Youssef, the renowned writer, content creator, and the founder of The Fat Kid Inside. We chat about his adventures around the world and his willingness to throw himself into unique situations, from running industrial kitchens in Bangkok, to managing a team of old Russians in Siberia, to helping to found the cocktail scene in the Philippines. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. So I'm Erwan Youssef um, from the Philippines of Filipino and French descent. Um, I work in various businesses and in various industries, but all focused around food and um, beverages. Um, so in Manila, I still run the beverage programs and menu designs for a couple of bars and nightclubs, uh, all under the Palace Manila mantle. Um, and I also have a bunch of agro-industrial um, business interests from farm management to eventually distribution towards restaurants and bars of the produce that we create. Um, and we do things like importing beef. So again, it's all about the sourcing and the distribution of food. Um, and then on the bar side, I still do it because I just really enjoy it. And that's kind of like, for me, where I fell in love with hospitality. Cool. Um, so tell us a little bit about how did you get into bartending, produce as such? Uh, what, what's your background? So I did, I did uh, international business in Paris for four years. So I was uh, born and raised in the Philippines, left when I was around um, 17 years old, went to Paris for four years. During my stay in Paris, our school required us to work six months um, abroad and then do six months of schooling during those four years. So I did um, China, I did Vietnam, I did Greece, um, and always in various positions within the hospitality industry, not necessarily just hotels. Um, so, for example, in Vietnam, I was the assistant FNB, uh, the assistant to the FNB manager. Um, in China, I was absolutely everything you could throw at me, from banquet supervisor to the guy that fixes the aircon to dishwasher, so absolutely everything. Um, and then after my university in Paris, I did Bangkok. Um, and I worked in Bangkok for six months. Um, I worked for a large uh, group called Sodexo, um, which basically did all the food programs of all the hospitals in Bangkok. And if you've ever been to Bangkok, the hospitals there are like five-star hotels. Um, and so we did all the in-food, uh, in-room food from the IVs to the processing of like sludge for people who didn't have teeth to chew, I guess. Um, so basically, really just an interesting facet of food. And then after that, I was positioned for the same company in Siberia, Russia for two years, uh, where I did operations management and took care of um, a nightclub, took care of a bar, took care of um, a pastry franchise, a business center, um, oil rigs, mining companies, and I did all the beverage and food for those people, the logistics, the management, and eventually the production of the food and delivery of the food. Um, and all throughout that, like in college, obviously, I would I would bartend and uh, just for some extra cash on the side. And then all the odd jobs that I ever took, I always gravitated towards the bar. It was something for me that was always more of a passion, um, just because in the bar, you are at the forefront of hospitality. This was before uh, chefs had open kitchens where chefs could actually talk to customers and the only people that could actually make something while talking to someone were the bartenders mm -hmm. and I just love that because you both learn a lot because it's very hard to be focused but in the same time entertain someone um, and I thought that was a great baptism um, by fire just to try to get a bit more comfortable I'm, I'm a naturally very introverted person so that helped me push push me out a little bit um, so then I came back to the Philippines 
Um, and in the Philippines, I started doing exactly what I was doing in Siberia, working for a large scale industrial catering company. Um, and then after three years, I was just like, okay, I've, I think I've, I've built enough experience um, in all aspects of the business and always mostly from a management management uh, perspective. And I said, all right, you know, I think I'm ready to open my, my own place. Um, and that's how I opened Nainari Chinana, which was my first cocktail bar. Um, at the time, it was just me, David, uh, who had just opened the curator, was literally a shoebox in a cabinet with no liquor license. Um, and this other bar called Blind Pig, which was kind of like your classic 1920s New York speakeasy experience. Yeah, it's very milk and honey style, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. yeah, those guys Those guys were the ones who came in to, to consult. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, they did. It was actually opened by... It, okay. it was actually opened by them. Because it's a very similar feel. Like, yeah, vibe. exactly. Um, and so it was just the three of us. And so there was no resources. Um, I guess we're talking here about 2013, 2014. So... This whole cocktail renaissance was just, especially in Asia, was just not even, in, in the Philippines, it wasn't even starting. Um, and in Asia, people were still figuring it out. Singapore wasn't where it is now, right? And even in the U.S. and places like Paris that didn't really have a cocktail culture 2014, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone was still learning. You just grab some books, you know, you buy all the books you can on Amazon, then we would hand carry liquors and bitters and basically be, you know, alcohol meals for our bars. And it was just such a fun experience to try to put that together. Um, so once the first bar opened, that opened the doors to so many new opportunities. So we started opening restaurants and things like that. And I just started finding I loved the bars, but the restaurant business was very toxic, especially in the Philippines where competition is very high um, and the rents just kept escalating. So I didn't see the restaurant business as something that was sustainable, but I saw the bar business as something that was sustainable. So we kept focusing on bars and the nightlife um, because people in the Philippines love to drink. Um, I hope everyone comes to visit. <laughs> um, but what I realized then, because I, I, I guess I grew up a little bit, matured a little bit, had a couple of failures under my belt. And I realized what I loved about food was the origin, the history, the culture behind the food. Um, And that's when I started doing all these travels and everything. And during all this time, I was literally just, I've I've always been someone who wrote. So I was the the beverage, um, what's it called? The beverage uh, and food editor for Esquire at the time. So kind of like David Wondrich, just the cheaper version <laughs> um, for the Philippines. So I wrote for Esquire. I started my own online blog, um, started writing. The writing evolved to shooting videos. The videos evolved to creating a digital platform. And so I'm in a position now where I'm very happy where I can merge both the digital world um, with all my passions and what I do. And in the same time, I get to find these really cool ingredients and try to help out farmers and then help you know, connect them with the right restaurants and the right um, bars in the Philippines. Just to touch a little bit about some of your uh, traveling experience, because you mentioned that you lived in uh, several countries before having the chance to settle back into the Philippines. How did was it for you to move to such remote places like you mentioned, Siberia? What were the main challenges you had when you went there? I think for me, it was more of uh, my, my dad was a cowboy, like in the purest form. Uh, he was a I don't know how you can call it. I think a geothermal physicist. So he was, it was a very fancy name for basically the guy that you send to the most remote places on earth uh, just to do scientific tests to see if there's oil. And so he would live in places like Borneo before there was anyone for a year, two years. He'd live in places in Africa within tribes. And so growing up, I was always a, a spectator to those stories. And I think for me, it built this 
this picture of my dad as this crazy Tarzan, Robinson Crusoe type of guy. And I'm just like, oh, I want that kind of adventure in my life. And and after college, I realized, you know, everyone was complaining, oh, it's so hard to get a job and I don't know what to do. No one's hiring and the pay is, is so bad in the beginning and everything. And and when I was talking to those people, I'm like, yeah, but that's because you're looking for jobs in Paris. You're looking for jobs in London. I'm like, you need to, especially when you're that young, you can take it. So I was mm -hmm. like, and I told everyone, I was like, send me to the, the craziest place in the world and I'll probably say yes. Um, regardless of the money, regardless of all of that. And I just said, because I think if someone after those two years looks at my CV and goes, this guy lives in Siberia, like <laughs> that's the guy we want on our team because it shows that you have, you know, you have mental, you're either really crazy or you're just someone who knows how to cope with, with things like that. And so I was mentally ready for a complete change in life. And, and if you haven't been to Russia, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about East Russia, Every stereotype you've heard about Russia is absolutely 100% true. Really? Especially in East <laughs> Russia. It's I, I thought you were about to say the exact no, opposite. Like, no, you go to Moscow and St. Petersburg, okay, there's still some problems, but most, it's it's still very westernized. But then you go to Eastern Russia and it's the wild, wild east. It's really? 5 a.m. vodka. It's people showing up in the kitchens completely drunk. It's, I got beat up in the streets three times walking home to, to work for no reason. Just people who wanted to fight. Um, the so, girls are absolutely beautiful. The guys want to kick my ass all the time. So it was really kind of like this, this so crazy experience. Yeah. How did you cope with people showing up to work completely wasted? It, so I was, I was 21, came in. Um, I had to manage a team of 40 Russians, all of them older than me. None of them spoke English. So you can imagine the type of, you know, can I, can I swear? Uh, yeah, of okay, course. The type of shit that would give, <laughs> they would give me on a daily basis, and and so it came to a point where the last, I think, the first six months, I probably fired sixty percent of the of the initial employee list, and so that's probably why I got beaten up in the street. Actually, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, looking back at it, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I caught I caught people like taking slabs of eight kilo ribeyes in their in their backpacks going outside because there's no security measures there was one time when the snow was melting literally i'm not kidding there's like a hundred kgs of pork uh, meat and everything that they stored in the ice so it wouldn't go bad and then little by little they could take it out and as as it was becoming summer and it was it was it was melting i saw all this produce outside i'm just like wow this is such an insane place um so it was, it was very tough it was very very tough but it was such an enriching experience yeah, I hope so. I don't yeah. know, because like, uh, at least I think if it didn't kill you, it made you stronger, right? Correct. Yeah, exactly. And uh, how did you feel when, because you lived abroad for such a long time, when you moved back to the Philippines, was it a bit of a cultural shock or did you feel like I'm back home again? No cultural shock whatsoever, but um, I think what I saw from people my age was the lack of... Um, the lack of discipline and passion and work ethic. And that's why I was so happy that I did all these things because I thought that was very important because I, I hit the ground running. I came to the Philippines. I'm like, look, um, I'm not going to waste my time doing nothing and going out and partying. I'm just going to work every day and put in the effort and, and eventually get somewhere. Um, and so it wasn't really a culture shock, but it just made me realize how lucky I was to have had previous professional experiences in, in tough places. Um, and it also makes you realize when you go to these crazy places and have these experiences, the, uh, countries like the Philippines, when you get there, you realize how much opportunity there is and the opportunity is there, but only for people who really want to, 
work hard for it. Um, and I think that that for me was was amazing. So because you mentioned that from the get go, you wanted to hit the ground running, right? So therefore, did you immediately say, okay, I really need to open my own place? Or have you thought maybe a partner with someone and see how this market works? How did you go about it? In the beginning, so I was working for a corporate company. And, and that was very important for me, because I'd never worked in the Philippines. So I wanted to understand that work culture and what were the quirks and how it made it different from other countries. And if you've ever worked in the Philippines, what you'll find is very different is the emotional attachment to work. Um, in other countries, you can be very black and white with people and be very straightforward with people. In the Philippines, there's a way of saying certain things because people can get very offended. And so that emotional aspect for me was completely new, especially coming from Russia, where <laughs> literally you can swear <laughs> yeah. at your boss and... It, it doesn't offend them at all. Like So I had to tone myself down a little bit. I'm like, all right, this is how we do things here. And so that was important for me. That was the first step. Um, and only when I thought that I kind of understood that and only I, when I had a handle on the market that I say, okay, I can go ahead and open my own place. But um, I didn't want to do that completely by myself. I wanted to make sure that I partner up with someone who's had experience in the nightlife industry in the Philippines. So I partnered up with uh, Eric Kua who had been in the nightlife industry, mostly in clubs, for years and years and years. And basically, when we met for the first time, I said, hey, you know, you've done clubs really well. And I told him, you know, this is 2014. Big clubs still make a lot of money. Big clubs today still make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, people will start asking for something different. People will start asking for boutique concepts. People will start asking for cocktail bars. And so it was a, a long conversation with him. And then eventually, because... At that point, we couldn't prove anything. Um, even the hotel bars weren't great in the, in the Philippines, and so uh, we talked about it for a while. And he said, "Okay, let's let's do a let's try to do a." We we found an agreement, which was to do a high volume cocktail bar. I started from I want to do really controlled menu, ten items, you know, very specific, right? And this is because I was young and eager, and I wanted to prove myself and make a name for myself. And then he's like, "Listen, everyone, let's do a trial. Let's do a high volume cocktail bar." And then I was like, okay, game, because that's how you introduce things to people. Because it was a fairly large space. It was about 400 square meters. Okay, quite big. Um, yeah. So it was important to, to cater to, you know, a larger larger percentage of the, of the drinking population. Um, so that's what we did. And we saw it caught on. And we were really happy about that. So what kind of clientele did you cater to? Was it mostly locals or uh, you tried to cater to expats? It was, so because the space was so big and because we were in a central business district, um, maybe I would say 70% local, 30% foreign. Mm -hmm. um, and the locals were all um, mid, you know, mid to higher management positions. Um, and in the beginning, you'd see them standing there uh, or ordering whiskey. So it was mostly Johnny Walker Black and it was bottles of beer on the table. And then you'd see the foreigners come in, mostly draft beers and then neat whiskeys, various whiskeys that we had on display. And then eventually we, I'm like, you know what, how do we make, how do we get people interested? Like if you've never heard of a Negroni, why are you going to order a Negroni, mm -hmm. right? So there's two ways of doing that as a bartender. It's one, you're extremely skillful of, you know, you're, you, you know, you know your stuff and you can translate that to someone who doesn't come from your world and try to sell them that drink and, or at least make them try that drink. Um, and, uh, because it was such a, uh, you know, it was such a new thing in the Philippines, I couldn't expect that from the new bartenders that we were training because for them, they were coming from TGIF Fridays, you know, dirty pours and dumps and stuff like that. And 
And so it was, it was, it was a, a situation where you're like, all right, how do you convince people to drink? Yet you can't really, unless you're there 24-7 and you're the only person serving drinks, you can't do that by yourself. So, was, so that's when we started focusing on the back bar. And so we made the back bar super eclectic. The way I thought of Niner Chinana for me was like, what would it be if you lived in a, you know, an old school Houdini magic box? And so we had random stuff all over the places, trinkets, drapes coming from the ceiling. We had, I think it was at one point, maybe 200 bitters that we only used 30 of them, uh, 200 bitters. And then I was like, all right, you know, how do we, why don't we start this way? Super short menu, mostly classics. Um, and the rest is all talk oriented and so every drink that we did in the first year um, that was off the menu was all customized and bespoke um, and it wasn't it wasn't something that I really liked to to do bespoke drinks but it was for me very important so that it would it would force the bartenders to talk to the customers mm -hmm. understand their palate profile and then try to convince them with a drink and for me I would always leave off with what do you currently drink what do you like you like wine and so we had these categories with all the bartenders and said, okay, if someone likes wine, focus on these liquors, focus on these flavor profiles, and just try to build their their um, their palates from there. And it started working. And so once people started ordering bespoke drinks, they got curious about classic drinks. Then we were able to change the menu, remove most of the bespoke cocktails, and then start making signature cocktails that people would come mm -hmm. for. How did you go about training um, at first, so I don't know if you know Din Hassan. I do, yeah. Yes, so mm -hmm. Din came over, um, and he did a two-week training with everyone just to kind of show people the basics. Okay. Um, back then, he was working for Bitters in Love. Mm -hmm. um, he was working for Bitters in Love. He was known as the OG cocktail bartender in Singapore. And so I'm like, perfect, let's bring him over and see what happens. So we brought him over for two weeks, um, and it just gave people the basics. And I was really lucky with my first bartenders. They just were very skillful and they could absorb knowledge really quickly. None of them had yet that passion today. Like today when I interview a bartender, I can ask him about his passion about bartending. Back then it was just like, right, can you mix a drink? Do you understand proportions? Do you understand flavor? And then the rest we can train. Um, so after those two weeks, it was literally just daily sessions of making them taste, 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 taste. Because I come from... I, I, cooked for a long time when I bartended in college I think it's like anyone in the 90s or sorry in the 2000s that bartended in college was literally making rum cokes and like you know Cosmos with flaming Cosmos. exactly it wasn't yeah. very sexy it wasn't very skillful um your proportions didn't mean anything no 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 <laughs> totally like my first bar I had the sweet and sour mix which uh, basically we made because we were a five-star hotel <laughs> we had uh, like a recipe which I think was one bag of sweet and sour mix yeah. one uh, liter of water and one liter of fresh lemon juice wow shelf life one week <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah yeah, so so that's where we were uh, leaving from and you know when you uh, and I always make this um, parallel to cooking when you cook today you give me a list of ingredients 10 ingredients you tell me you're gonna sear it in my head I can already tell what it's gonna taste like mm -hmm. it's not gonna be an exact science but more or less I know what flavors are gonna come out because I have this library reference in my head of every ingredient that I've ever used um, with bartending like, okay, great, you've had a tequila, but have you had 200 tequilas? Have you had 200 whiskeys? And so for the bartenders that we had, especially coming from like Fridays and Chili's and stuff like that, it was, you know, it was for them, they saw alcohol as something very monochromatic. It was whiskey has one flavor. 
tequila has one flavor, gin has one flavor, and it's usually the most popular brands. It was Bombay, it was Johnny Walker, it was Jack Daniels, and that's what they knew these things to be. So for me, the most important thing to train first was the tongue and how to taste. And so we literally spent, I don't know, how many hours just opening bottles of alcohol and trying and trying and trying. And that's why I bought so many bitters as well. So we could really just try the, the and understand the, the variance of flavor. And for me also, I was training myself in the same time. And I'd read a book, tell everyone, you know, it's kind of like a book club. Hey, everyone, take a book and then tell us your findings. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so that that's how it happened in the beginning. It was a learning process for everyone. So we mentioned uh, uh, about you opening your own business and how you managed to do that. However, how was the scene at the time? And like specifically in the Philippines, was it like literally 100% big clubs and zero cocktail bars? And when did it start to switch to like more and more cocktail bars because right now you have a few right yes and right now and we're probably at 30 Mm -hmm. 30 cocktail bars it's still not crazy compared to singapore uh, but 30 and a lot of them maybe let's say 15 to 20 of them opened in the last year last two years so it's the the volume at which they're opening um is is much more is much faster so back then when we opened um aside from curator blind pig and ourselves um all bars it was just beer and wine Straight whiskeys and gin and tonics, probably. That was as far as you would go. Big nightclubs, you had bars, but bars were mostly about food and really simple drinks you eat with food, bottle service, um, fairly simple. Um, so that that was our main, our main challenge is because we were coming from a place where there was no interest in a cocktail. And if I gave a coupe to a man, he'd say, give me a manlier glass. Uh-huh. So it was it was at that time, right? Um, and so was, there was a lot of education needed, but I hate that word because it makes it makes it sound like we think we're better than them. It was it was not an education. It was more like an introduction and saying, hey, this is how other people do it and how other people enjoy it. Um, and there was not much in the media back then. But then as you started seeing cocktails and like Mad Men and people were drinking Manhattans and everything. And then people were watching these shows. And then so all that helps. That globalization really helped. So people were like, oh, you know, I saw this drink called an old fashioned on Mad Men. It looked really good. Can I have an old fashioned? And so those were the drinks that really started pushing the, the, the cocktail scenes. I'd have to say it was the Manhattan, it was the Negroni, um, it was the Daiquiri. The Pina Colada for me was my favorite to make for people because when people thought Pina Colada, they thought umbrellas and Club Med and you know blended and stuff which you know you can have some really great blended pina coladas and then i started making one just using just really fresh pineapple juice and we have so many great coconuts in the philippines so we had fresh coconut cream and everything and it was delicious and people loved it and so it's just these little small battles that you win and eventually people start looking for that do you think now the market has evolved to an extent where the consumers uh are uh, willing to try new flavors? 100%. Yeah. Back then, we so you were talking about sour mixes. We had this thing called Island Mixer. Um, it was a green bottle, and it said lime on it, and it tasted <laughs> like <laughs> shoe polish with lime extract. Um, and back then, I'm not kidding you. Like, if I was in a in a bar, and I would ask, hey, can I have a gin with lime juice? Simple. It would be gin with that lime mixer, because for them... That was lime juice, uh-huh. and it was insane. You couldn't ask for fresh, for fresh citrus. That's crazy to yeah, think. Yeah, there's huh? no fresh citrus in the bars, uh, and if there was, it was just to make a wedge out of it and stuff it into something, right? Um, and so now you're at a point where people are have expectations, right? But the, the the percentage of the population is still very split. Some people still come just wanting a beer or just wanting whiskey, and we're mm-hmm. happy with that because that's what our bar caters to. But 
we're happy to see that when you look at our overall sales in terms of itemized sales, we're happy to see that it's a 50-50 split. So 50% of the people are ordering cocktails and 50% are, are still ordering just, you know, spirits. You mentioned uh, that you started to work with uh, Filipino ingredients and produce and supplying those ingredients to bars. How did you go about that and where did the inspiration come from? Um, it's just... When you meet farmers in the Philippines, everyone plants the same thing. And when everyone plants the same thing, then you understand that there's a there's an issue behind that. And the reason is because the people demanding the the produce all want the same thing. So that means you're in a state where no one's really pushing or innovating everything. And then on the customer side, you hear everyone complain, oh, you know, I wish we had kale or I wish we had uh, Swiss chard and I wish we had strawberries and all these things. And then you're like, You know, the Philippines has, you know, amazing terrain um, and varying terrain from very from from temperate to very hot. And so I was like, there's a lot of these things that can actually be planted here. And so it was just proving to the farmers that there was a demand for these products and then working on the other side. And this why this is why the digital aspect was so important is introducing the customers to brand new ingredients that they might want to try. Um, and so. I was in that position where I was, I had both a, a large following on digital platforms and I also had a lot of friends in the, in the food and beverage industry. And I had uh, my brother-in-law um, works in agro industry. I'm like, all right, how do you connect all those things together? Um, and so that's why we started small avocados, potatoes. Um, now we're focusing on lime because there's no lime in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Everything's imported. Um, and just getting those little things out of the way. So that, to show people that we can actually grow a lot in the Philippines. Um, and then in terms of when I travel around the country, I find these really cool ingredients and I try to just speak to them to the larger public um, just to see if people would be interested in seeing this produce in their markets, right? And then once I see a spike in, in any chatter in terms of people talking about, oh, where do you get that? Or where do you get that? Then I can backtrack and tell the farmers, hey, people are interested. If it takes you two years, then I, I would suggest you start planting now so at least people can start using it. Um, and, and that's why for me, limes are so important because if you look at limes, I don't know how many kilograms of limes mm. you guys use a week, but it's probably in the hundreds of kilos, mm. right? Um, imagine now with 30 bars, 30 bars each ordering a hundred kgs a week. It's a lot do of Do the money. math. Yeah, I'm terrible at math, yeah. but do the math. We're both in the same boat, so. <laughs> but if someone had the foresight of planting lime trees 10 years ago, he'd be making bank. Um, but just no one knew that that demand eventually would come. So that's where I try to position myself now is, is try to see where I can help out in that aspect. Because one of the things that, you know, it's very interesting that you say this because, for instance, I was in Cognac recently and I had the chance to talk to a Cognac producer, a reasonably big one, but they buy, they source the fruit and the spirit from smaller producers. But there are certain practices that work and some other practices that do not work. There are some produce that works, some that doesn't work. And the way that they had to do it was to have a plot of land themselves and then show the results to the farmer saying, hey, I did this, it works, you should do it too. That's the way they convinced like farmers to work mm -hmm. with them. And it's very interesting to see that you've used the digital aspect of like this very modern approach that we have towards hospitality to try to convince farmers. But in terms of like the digital aspect of Of, of your work how do you go about uh, filming how important is it how much time do you dedicate to it and what platforms do you use to advertise what you do so i think now it probably takes up 
60 to 70 percent of my time like the the company i have which is called the fat kid inside is a full-on production company um and it's full of creative agency also um the way we do things is we pitch commercial projects to various brands in the philippines and try to create relevant content for them to get funding and then whatever extra funding we can put aside we then use that for our exploration and stuff like that and Mm -hmm. videos that we do just for ourselves um and all the cooking videos and stuff like that um so it takes a lot of my time um but what i'm happy of now is it can be used for absolutely anything right because it's not attached to a certain person or certain brand or a certain format it's really just like you would have a tv channel anything you put on it could or could not you know do really well um and so for me any business that i get get into um and i think i've come to a point where i understand that i can't do anything everything by myself um so all the other businesses have very strong operational teams or partners they run those things very well and then i come in on the on the digital side to see how i can push uh, whatever needs pushing um so it's become like this very cool symbiotic relationship which is extremely modern uh when i tell people what i do a lot of people still don't really understand and for me that means i'm doing something right mm-hmm. um and yeah it's great because we you know we built our office where everything is in one place so you have various businesses operating under one roof um and everyone can come talk to anyone Um, So anytime someone needs something, they can come to me and like, oh, hey, we're having issues with this one particular ingredient. Can you help us out? This one particular beverage outlet's having problems. What can we come up to to help push it? Um, So, yeah, yeah, I I think, you know, it's the type of thing where every day things change. Um, And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm married. I don't cope with hangovers very well. Um, so I'm not someone back then when I opened the bar and we were opening the bar, literally I was there every night till three, four in the morning. Um, and the problem with that is that you can't get up at seven in the morning for everything else that you have to do, especially like imagine farming, mm-hmm. farming, you have to be up at four in the morning. So oh, yeah, those are two things that are <laughs> extremely, you know, clash. And that's why I'm so happy that some of the people that I opened my first bar with stuck with me all throughout. And so those are all people now who are doing, or, you know, they take care of the training. They're the ones who lead that. Um, and so it's it's great because that's what we really wanted to do. When I first met David, our first conversation, one of the first conversations we said was, how do we get Filipinos proud to be bartenders? Back then, being a bartender is like currently still in the Philippines when people see themselves as waiters. You don't have career waiters. It's temporary. It's just because I need to survive. Mm-hmm. But then now bartenders are super proud to be bartenders. And the first conversation I had with David was like, how do we make them proud to be bartenders? Um, and so now that we have people like that, they can kind of carry on what we set out to do. And, and we don't have to be <laughs> in the bars drinking until three in the morning. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the importance of having a great team, right? Because the moment Correct. they buy into like, you can't be everywhere 24 seven, right? hundred percent. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, that uh, the name of your company is called Fat Kid Inside. Yeah. So would you like to talk to us a little bit about the name and how did you come out? Uh, So that's when I started writing on food and writing on beverages. So I was I was 240 pounds. I was a big boy, about 115 kilos. Um, When I lived in Russia, I was a big boy Um, and it was really cold. So I needed the insulation. Exactly. (laughs) And so I was really big. And then so when I started writing, so I started writing about food, I started writing about beverages and then as I was doing that, I started getting a bit more health conscious. So I started writing about my struggles with weight and weight loss. And then eventually got to a point where I lost 
all the weight I wanted to lose. I went from 240 pounds, I think 180, 170 or something like that. Um, and I was like, all right, I need the perfect name for this platform. And I'm like, what do you call it? And I'm just like, I'm this guy who, you know, who lost a lot of weight, but I still feel like the urge to eat the burger or drink that, you know, drink a whole bottle of whiskey or something. Like that. And so I, I called it the fat kid inside because he's always inside of me trying to tell me what to do. <laughs> oh, that's a crazy, that's a crazy cool name. Yeah. What helped you lose weight? Like, it was more of a, like a conscious thing. Like I have to do it. Like, what, what did you find the drive? Because the drive is what makes it difficult. It's right? the most important. Um, for me was, it's, it's, it came to a point when I looked at my, I was always a very sporty person, but I was sporty yet gaining weight. And I looked at myself in the mirror. I'm just like, I don't recognize this person anymore. Um, cause I wasn't a fat kid, like a huge kid growing up. I was chubby, but not huge. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I, I, you know, little things like each time I'd walk, my legs would rub together and I couldn't walk the next day cause it was just rashes everywhere. You'd get out of breath really easily. Um, and then the more you eat, the more you drink, the more depressed you get, the more you smoke cigarettes, the later you s- spend a night and you just see it as a really vicious cycle. And mm-hmm. then. So I realized one day, I'm like, you know, let's let's do this like anything else in, in the world. Let's just educate ourselves. And so I bought 10 of the most popular diet books at that time. And then I summarized all of them. And I said, where are the commonalities? How do they intertwine? And let's focus just on that because I don't believe one book's going to change my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I used that system. And then I realized as I was losing weight, I said, the only person for anyone in the world that's trying to lose weight, the only person um, that's stopping you is yourself. Because at the end of the day... If you look at a piece of cake and you say, oh, my God, it's so hard to resist this piece of cake. I say bullshit. Like if you eat the cake, it's just because you're not ready to take that step to be extremely disciplined with yourself. Mm. Um, And so I still do these experiments to test my discipline and my resolve. Like last year, I did seven days where I didn't eat. I just drank water, just water, no supplements, nothing, no tea or coffee, just water for seven days just to refresh that resolve. This year, I did three months with no alcohol at all um and it's just because i you know i always i'm the type of person always says you have to walk the talk right so if i'm telling people hey it's easy all it's easy in concept because it is because at the end of the day it's a decision once you make that decision it's on you and then if you cheat it's on you um and the last thing you want to do is lie to yourself or say oh it's okay i'll start tomorrow um And that's what I try to tell people. I said, you can buy all the diet books. You can subscribe to these expensive things. You can eat quinoa. You can eat kale, whatever. You can complain about no time or expensive ingredients. But if you ask me, how do you lose weight today? Go to the market, buy a sweet potato, buy some chicken breast, buy whatever green vegetable you can find in your supermarket. That's going to be one of your cheapest meals. And you can eat that breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. Nothing's stopping you. But you'll be like, oh, but it's not tasty. But again... Tasty doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. That's your weakness because you're looking for something tasty. Um, When you're losing weight, I always tell people you should be like a horse. All you're doing is fuel. You just need fuel. That's all you need. You don't even care about what the thing tastes like. Um, And it's a good break, right? And I always tell people also like who, why do we always have to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks? Who told you that? Like no one invented and said, hey, you need to eat at 10. You need to eat at 12, whatever. I always tell people just eat naturally like eat a little bit now eat a bit later whenever you're hungry grab something um because we need to get away from you know all the conditioning that we have from information passed down to parents to education and when you look at life that way when you kind of like play the devil's advocate at every turn and say hey this is taught to me but 
is there a better way? And then once you find something that works for you, then it'll it'll be much easier. What I like about this mentality is that it's very applicable to like what you do in your business, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing that more or less you did when you went to the Philippines and you said, okay, how do I make this in a different way? Like, how do I challenge the preconception of mm. what a bar is supposed to be and stuff like that, which is, uh, which is quite admirable. I think even today, like within the bar industry, and you know this as much as I do, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of chatter and everything. People want their concept to be a certain way. They want to be taken you know, seriously in very different ways. They're very different bartenders, right? There's some who do it uh, for recognition. There's some who want to be known as specialists and everything. And I, I tell people all the time, at the end of the day, create a space you want to drink in. There are no rules, right? If you want to serve beer next to your cocktail, go for it. If someone says, oh, I don't want to serve beer. Or if, if, if a guy in, the, in, in my bar in particular, some guy says, hey, can I buy that bottle of single malt? I'll be like, yeah, why not? You know, like... I, because I grew up going to bars that were more like dive bars where there were no rules. You could drink whatever you want, and there were some skilled bartenders behind the bar. And I was just like, that's what I wanted to create something fun. Um, and it, it was true to who I was. Like, so I always tell people who want to get into the bar business, don't put a mask on, don't put a costume on, do something that you want to do, right? I've seen some really fun people do a bar that's like extremely speakeasy and quiet and shh, can't talk. Like stuff like that, and it, it doesn't match their personality. So I'm just like, at the end of the day, you're going to be there 80% of your life. You better enjoy it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. no, you better totally love agree. it. Yeah. So uh, what's up next for you? Do you see yourself opening more bars? Um, I think we're happy with the bars that we have. I think like every bar owner's dream, the next step, and especially because we're, we're heavily involved in agriculture now, is the, the distillation and the creation of the spirit. Um, I still think the Philippines doesn't have... It's, you know, it's beacon spirit that everyone talks about. Um, you know, Thailand for a while, I mean, when Chao Bay came out, everyone was talking about it. Isan Run came out. The Philippines, we have the highest consumption of gin in, in the world. We have the highest consumption of brandy in the world. And we're in the top three con- consumers of rum in the world. Um, insane. But then you're buying these bottles in a supermarket for $2. Okay, so it's a very different type of spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, But it just shows you that people love to drink. And Uh so where people love to drink, there's opportunity for spirits. And there's an opportunity for better spirits. There's a couple companies now that I think David works with also um, that are are fantastic. Um, And I think that's the right approach. Um, And for us, it would be small scale. And just like everything that we do, it's trying to see... What's the produce of the Philippines and how do we make it shine and process it? And so all our, our projects moving forward are more on the back end of things. It's just finding that special produce, finding a process that's interesting, not even spirits. It could be candy. It could be dried corn. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do you kind of like make that a beacon of hope for the Philippines and for Filipino entrepreneurs and say, hey, we have really cool stuff. Let's be proud of it and let's use it properly. Is it difficult to open the distiller in the Philippines or? Uh, License-wise and everything, no. Um, I think the Philippines, the issue with the Philippines in general is that, especially if you're looking at the produce side of things, everything has been grown commercially. And commercially, that means the soils are filled with, you know, I don't know if you're doing organic or not, but, you know, for some people it doesn't really matter. But the soils are not as pristine as they should be in certain places. And every variety that's ever been grown or that's grown mostly is variety that they know will produce the same results, quote unquote, you know, year in, year out, right? So yeah, consistent. Consistent. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you're looking for uh, sugarcane to make agricole, you won't find the variety that's best for agricole because the one that's planted is just to produce 
molasses uh-huh, and sugar, uh-huh. right? So it's it's finding those partner farmers, like those big, because these guys have money. It's finding these big sugarcane farmers and saying, hey, can you allocate two hectares for this specific kind of cane sugar? And it's having those kinds of conversations. Yeah, so it's really, and that's what makes it really interesting because you're starting at the source. Whereas a lot of, you know, I, I always get jealous when I see bars opening in Europe or anything. It's easy, like their back bar. It's easy to fill up that back bar. In the beginning, we had, we couldn't even get, like in turn rye whiskey we only had canadian club that was the only rye whiskey in the philippines um single malts we only had diageo single malt products gins it was ten it was a uh, tanqueray and it was bombay that was it okay everything else we had to hand carry so when we saw books or when we saw bartenders doing drinks we felt left out because we we're like we can't get any of these things um and so that's why for me when we opened the bar it was it was so important for me to look at the produce that we had and say, you know what? Screw those brands. They're not here. No importers bringing them in. It's better now, obviously. How can we use these base spirits and just make them more interesting with infusions, with syrups, with everything that we have at our disposal that we can control? Um, and it's the same thing with producing a spirit eventually. It's just looking at what do we have that's beautiful that the rest of the world would want um, and using it smartly. Cool. I think this is a good note to wrap this thing up. Uh, if uh, Last question. If anyone wants to find you, what's uh, the best way to follow what you do or uh, um, so contact everything's you? Everything's on thefatkidinside.com and then on Instagram is just at Erwan. Um, on YouTube is where we put most of our videos and that's Erwan Youssef. Uh, YouTube.com slash Erwan Youssef. Cool. Thank you very much for finding the time. It was Thank awesome you. talking to you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Erwan. We are unjigged underscore media on Instagram, and you can follow our accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.